All right, today it's very fortunate to have over Sam, Sam Hsu from Mercy Medical Center. Sam graduated from Maryland Emergency Medicine back in 97 and essentially never left, stayed over at Mercy the entire time. Around 2002 or so, we started to get very interested in ultrasound, do a lot more teaching for the ultrasound. About a few years later, started to, to run the ultrasound curriculum. And as of 2012, right when I was graduating residency, he now runs all the ultrasound training for the uh, EM, fellow, EM residents here at uh, Maryland. So today he's going to go over a really interesting topic for pretty much every field in medicine, and that's how to use ultrasound to answer the questions that you find in the ICU every day, or the emergency department, or the floor, or anywhere. All right, so Sam, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for that introduction. I don't know if it's good for everywhere, but <laughs> hopefully it'll be good for you. So I'm going to talk about lung ultrasound today, which I liken to reading tea leaves. Who knows who's ever heard of reading tea leaves? It's kind of an ancient thing where you uh, go to this uh, fortune teller, you drink some tea, and uh, the fortune teller looks at the pattern of your tea leaves and tells your fortune, right? So if you don't know lung ultrasound, it's going to look a whole lot like reading tea leaves because what you see on screen is a bunch of random looking stuff and you're making some pretty dire pronouncements on that stuff. And you look at this, if you don't know ultrasound, and think, wow, that, that looks really bizarre. That kind of looks fake. You know what? That can't be real. Anybody who does lung ultrasound is a charlatan, right? So read, lung ultrasound looks a lot like reading tea leaves because what you see on screen does not look like lung. And you can't see the lung because it's completely obscured by artifacts. And so you end up interpreting the images without actually seeing the lung. Now, it turns out that lung ultrasound is a bit more reliable than tea leaves. And that's because the artifacts are predictable. And if you learn how to read those artifacts, you can read lung ultrasound. It is the least intuitive of all ultrasound applications because what you see is not really what's there. But it's not that hard to learn. Now, I could toss up a bunch of pictures and say, well, this is what normal looks like. This is what pulmonary edema looks like. But that wouldn't be a very interesting lecture. You could get all that from a book. What I hope to do for you today is explain to you why these pictures look the way they look, and you'll have a better understanding of them, and therefore, hopefully, be able to interpret them better. So I'm going to talk about some general concepts. I'm going to go over probe selection, why that can make a difference with your pictures. And we're going to talk a little bit about ultrasound and how it interacts with air. We're going to go over the artifacts that you're going to see in the lung, A lines, B lines, and Z lines. And then we're going to go over what you're going to see in the lung. I'm going to divide it into parenchymal and pleural findings. In reality, you would look at them both at the same time, uh, but it's just a useful way to categorize it. Now, by special request from the critical care fellows, I'm going to cover ultrasound of the diaphragm, looking at function to determine uh, or predict failure to wean from the vent. Now, why would you want to use lung ultrasound? Because, you know, you got an x-ray, right? Well, it gives you immediate bedside results and also provides information that your portable x-ray will not. You know, portable x-rays are, you know, sometimes they're equivocal, they're lousy quality, you can't make heads or tails out of them. Ultrasound is also better in some instances than x-ray because it has higher sensitivity for pneumothorax effusions and pulmonary edema. It's also especially helpful for help, helping to differentiate between what I call wet lung and dry lung disease. So wet being like pulmonary edema, pneumonia, ARDS, dry being pneumonia, COPD, etc. So let's talk about the probes. This is my go-to probe for pretty much everything, not just lung ultrasound, the curvilinear probe. It gives you a nice wide field of view. It penetrates deep into the body, so you can look at the parenchyma. It gives you a good look at the pleura as well. Now, it does have the drawback that it has a large footprint so that you get rib shadowing in the way. But that's actually one of the benefits in that it lets you see large areas all at once. Now, having spoken with a lot of the fellows here, I know that you mostly only have access to this probe, the phased array probe. And its benefit is that it has a small footprint, so you can put it in between the ribs and not have to deal with rib shadowing. It also casts a beam deep into the body, so you can look at the parenchyma, so it's good for that. 
but unfortunately it's detail in the shallow range, less than five uh, centimeters or so, is not very good. So this probe is not suitable for looking at the pleura or doing things like measuring the diaphragm thickness. The last probe you might want to consider using is your linear probe. This is a high resolution probe, so you see things in much better detail. So you can do fine measurements like looking at the diaphragm thickness or looking at the pleura. Unfortunately, its beam doesn't go very far into the body. It's only good for about four to five centimeters, so it's not good for looking into the parenchyma. So let's talk about ultrasound and air. So just to start at uh, basics, you get a picture when the ultrasound probe sends out a sound wave, and the wave bounces off an object and comes back to the probe. Now, the longer it takes for the sound wave to come back to the probe, the further down on screen it's drawn. The brightness of the objects that you see on screen has to do with how much sound wave is bounced back. Normal soft tissue bounces back less than 1%. Bone will bounce back 50% or so. That's why bone looks especially bright on ultrasound. Air is a special case where it bounces back virtually the entire wave, 99 plus percent. Therefore, air looks brightly echogenic on ultrasound, but it casts what we call acoustic shadows. All right, so here's our field once again, and let's put an air pocket right in there, a balloon. And what's going to happen is a beam is going to come out, hit that balloon, and the entire beam is going to bounce back to the probe. So at the border where we see the air, it's going to be a bright border. But then you won't see anything behind it because the entire sound wave is bounced back to the probe and no sound wave makes it further down on screen or wish I had a pointer here. No further sound wave gets down here and no echoes therefore come from down there. And if you ha don't have an echo coming back from someplace, the ultrasound beam or the ultrasound machine just interprets it as if there's nothing there and draws black on the screen. So we say that ultrasound doesn't penetrate air, but in reality what, we're, what that really means is the air is reflecting the entire ultrasound beam. So air in bowel is a real pain because it gets in the way of imaging intra-abdominal uh, uh, structures. Now air in the lung is exactly why you can't see the lung on ultrasound because it's bouncing back the entire sound beam and doesn't actually penetrate into the lung. Now, air behind a smooth interface like the diaphragm or the pleura is going to cause what we call an acoustic mirror. So here's an example of air and bowel. These white fluffy clouds are the air, and then you get shadowing behind it. So you can't see anything behind that air. That's a real problem when you're trying to find things in the abdomen. This is what, quote, lung looks like. That's actually, of course, not real lung. That's just how lung looks on ultrasound. And it's a bunch of artifacts, but we're not actually looking at the lung itself. So this is an example of mirror artifacts. So this is a picture of the right upper quadrant. And a lot of you might be familiar with this. this the probe is in longitudinal, so the head is this way and the feet are that way. So this is, of course, the liver and that's the diaphragm. Well, what's cephalad of the diaphragm? Lung, right? So people look at this and say, well, that's lung. But I have already told you, you can't see lung on ultrasound. So what is that? It's not long. There you go. So what's happening is, clicker doesn't work. What's happening is the sound beam is coming down, hitting that mirror and bouncing into the liver and going right back up. Now the machine doesn't know that the beam took that path. It thinks it went straight down and straight back up. So therefore, echoes that are actually coming from here are drawn on screen over there. So what we're looking at above the diaphragm, there is actually a mirror image of liver. Here's a video clip that shows you what lung, quote unquote, actually looks like. It's this hazy mess over here. So when the beam doesn't pass by the acoustic mirror, that's the diaphragm and the air behind it, you get a representation of what lung appears to be on ultrasound. So here's a little experiment that I set up to show you what air will do to ultrasound. So I have a water bath here and I have a straw here and a straw here. What I'm going to do is introduce an air pocket into this space here. And you'll see that the straw above the air pocket gets mirrored and the straw below the air pocket is blocked. All right, so air is going to mirror images superficial to it and block things behind it. 
The other thing to know about long ultrasound is that probes themselves are acoustic mirrors. And if you have a strong reflector parallel to the probe, you're going to set up an infinite mirror artifact. So if you ever walked between two large mirrors, you've seen this, right? You get an infinite mirror image of yourself between those two mirrors. So here's another experiment to show you that effect. So here I have a cup of water with a straw in it that I'm moving up and down, and there's nothing but air underneath the bottom of the cup. And this is the image you expect to see. But the image you actually get on the machine is this. You get a mirror image of that cup's bottom and anything inside the cup. Now that mirror image starts fading away with distance because the ultrasound beam degrades with every bounce it takes. Okay, now look at the bottom of the cup and those parallel lines that you see there. Those are A lines. All right, so let's talk about the lung artifacts. So normal lungs, as I mentioned, you never see on ultrasound. They never appear solid, normal lungs. Air is going to produce these predictable artifacts. A lines, which are horizontal, they're seen in normal lungs. B lines, which are vertical, and they are abnormal when there's more than three of them per inner space. Z lines are also vertical, but these are basically incidental findings. All right, A lines are hyperechoic horizontal artifacts. If you've done any abdominal scanning, you've seen them in the gallbladder as shown there. They're basically duplicated or mirror images of the pleural line, and their spacing is the same distance from the probe to the pleura. A lines are seen in normal lungs. All right, this is how A lines are created. So we have a probe, the pleural line is that blue line, and a beam comes out and starts bouncing back and forth between them. Every time the beam bounces back to the probe, it draws another line until that beam fades away. If there's an object within that bouncing beam, it'll be duplicated as well. So here are A lines. So there's the pleura up there, and your A lines are these lines right there. All right? And if you measure the distance between the probe and the pleura, you'll see that they match exactly the distance between each A line. Okay, this is what A-lines look like on your phased array probe. The phased array probe, as I mentioned, not very good in the near field or the you know, first uh, five centimeters or so. So you don't see the plural line that well with that probe, but you do see those A-lines. And again, you can see that the spacing between them matches the spacing between the probe and the plural. Moving on to B-lines. These are hyperechoic. That means they're white. They're cometal artifacts, uh, and they emanate from the visceral pleura they will always go down to the bottom of the screen. And they're going to move back and forth with plural sliding. B lines are going to erase A lines. They're going to go right through them and make them invisible where they are. And if there's more than three per inner space, it's considered abnormal. You can usually find one or two in the most dependent portions of the lung. All right, this is how B lines are made. So you have a disease process that makes your interlobular septum thick thick enough such, a, such that an ultrasound beam can get into them. And once it's in there, it starts bouncing around because it's surrounded by air, and the only way out is back up towards the probe. Well, as you know, anytime the probe sees an echo, it's going to start drawing stuff. And because it's a continuous echo coming back, it's going to draw a continuous line straight down to the bottom of the screen. Now, of course, that wave is going to fade away too with time, but before it fades completely away, another sound wave is sent out by the probe, and it rings the bell again, so to speak. Okay, this is what B lines look like with the phased array probe. They're the hyperechoic cometal artifacts that you see moving from side to side. Some people think of them as searchlights. Can everybody see that? It doesn't project that well. Three or more. Okay, here's another example of B lines. This is someone with pulmonary fibrosis. And you can see the B lines are very densely spaced here. And over here, they're so densely spaced that you get a phenomenon called white lung. That's when it's all mashed together and it's just white. Now, you can know that that's not normal lung because you don't see A lines over there. And it's much brighter than lung should be. Now, B lines, because of the way they're formed, will always go to the bottom of the screen. So this video clip just shows where I'm turning up the uh, depth. It's hard you know, as far as it'll go, 22 centimeters or so. And those B lines always go to the bottom of the screen. 
Now, if you read older literature, you'll see these bees lines referred to as long rockets, as videos. <laughs> so I don't talk about that, but um, I don't use that, that um, terminology myself. But if you read older literature, that's what you're going to hear about. All right, now bee lines are nonspecific in that there's a differential for them. They can be associated with pneumonia, pulmonary edema, pulmonary fibrosis, or ARDS. You can tell them apart by their distribution to some extent. So the sort of stereotypical distribution is pulmonary edema, where they're bilateral and evenly spaced. You can see them around pneumonia, but they tend to be more focal in those cases around the consolidation. Pulmonary fibrosis, ARDS, they're more irregularly spaced. Plus, there's going to be irregularity to the pleura. So that's a little bit advanced stuff. You can look at that um, chart later on. I think you have handouts of this lecture. Uh, Z lines are also cometal artifacts, but these are very small. In fact, they're hard to notice unless you specifically look for them. They arise from the parietal pleura, so you're not going to see them sliding back and forth, and they do not erase A lines. All right, here's a video that shows all three of those artifacts. So we see the A lines as these horizontal lines are a bit faint on this projection. The B line goes all the way down, and it erases the A line as it passes through it. But these Z lines are very fleeting, and you can see they do not erase the A line. All right, those are completely non-clinically significant, those Z lines. Let's talk about lung consolidation. So if you're going to scan the lung to look for consolidation, it's quite laborious, because you're going to have to look anterior above and below the nipple line in the axillary line above and below the nipple line, and then look posterior, and then do it all over again on the other side. All right, so that's a bit time-consuming. So this is what pneumonia is going to look like. On the right lung here, we see a few B lines. And on the left side, we see this hypodensity with hyperechoic uh, smudge in it. All right, that hyperechoic smudge is what's known as air bronchograms. Air, remember, appears bright on ultrasound. So air bronchograms can be either dynamic or static. Dynamic means you can see the air moving through them, okay? So if you look at this air bronchogram right here, you can see the air moving up and down into it, and it correlates to that air bronchogram on, that you see on CT. So here's an example of a lobar pneumonia. It's not, all, it's not subtle at all in that chest x-ray. But you can see on the video clip here this consolidation, hypochoic with hyperechoic schmutz in it. Okay, and at the beginning of the video clip here, you can see that the adjacent lung has those B lines due to local inflammation and thickening of the septa there. So here's a very subtle pneumonia, and I have to admit, I didn't pick this up on x-ray. The radiologist had to put those arrows on there for me to see it. So that's subtle on x-ray, but on ultrasound, not so subtle, because there it is, the hypoechoic collection with the hyperechoic air bronchograms and B lines adjacent to it. And this is in what an interstitial pneumonia is going to look like. So on ultrasound, interstitial and lobar pneumonias look pretty much the same. Now what this picture does depict is the so-called shred sign. So the shred sign is very specific for pneumonia. It's the interface between the consolidated lung and the normal, quote unquote, lung. And it's called the shred sign because it uh, resembles a paper. If you just kind of tore it, it would have a ragged edge. This is an example of hepatization of the lung. This is where the lung is so consolidated, it takes on a solid appearance. Now, don't mistake this for the mirror image of the liver that we looked at earlier. You know it's not a mirror image because the path of the ultrasound beam doesn't have to pass by the diaphragm in this case. And this is examples of subpleural consolidations. You'll see this with pneumonias, with ARDS, with interstitial fibrosis. It's these little hypodensities at the pleura. So lung ultrasound turns out to be very sensitive and specific for pneumonia. Uh, if you have pleuritic pain, it's even more specific 
and sensitive because that means the pathology has gotten out to the pleura. And just for interest, you can see how poor x-ray performs. They used chest uh, CT as the gold standard here. Now, I put this up not to advocate that you should look for pneumonia by ultrasound. I mean, I don't personally do that myself. It's time consuming. But what, you know, the point of this chart here is, is that if you see a consolidation, you can be assured that that's fairly accurate. Now, air bronchograms can help you distinguish between pneumonia and atelectasis. They're going to look similar on ultrasound. So if you have a dynamic air bronchogram, it's much more likely to be pneumonia. Because in atelectasis, that lung is not expanding, so you don't expect to see dynamic air bronchograms. Now, if you have static bronchograms, well, good luck to you. You're just going to have to distinguish pneumonia from atelectasis by clinical criteria, because there's no differentiation there. Here's a picture of a lung mass. There's the x-ray and the ultrasound. Here's the CT. Notice how detailed that ultrasound picture appears. Anytime you see that much detail, that means the lung is completely solidified. That's usually bad news for the patient. Now, with lung consolidation, you're not going to see A lines and B lines because those are created by air. And there's no air when it's consolidated. You may see A lines or B lines adjacent to the consolidation, but not within the consolidation. Remember, pneumonias are going to appear hypoechoic, so they're kind of hard to see because it's just dark. But they do have the characteristic echogenic air bronchograms next to them, and usually surrounding the pneumonias, there's going to be some B lines. And masses are just going to plain look like solid tissue. They're pretty easy to identify. Moving on to pleural findings, we're going to talk about pneumothorax now. So as you already probably know, Chest x-ray is terrible for pneumothorax, especially supine portables. Uh, ultrasound has a significantly higher sensitivity for this. So when you're looking for a pneumothorax, you're going to try to detect pleural sliding or lung expansion. And the lung's going to expand more in a longitudinal direction than a transverse direction. So you're going to want to put the probe longitudinally on the most anterior part of the patient's chest. And you're going to look for lung sliding. Okay, and this is what it should look like on ultrasound. So we're looking at rib here, rib there, soft tissue there, and then the bright echogenic line is the pleura. And if you look at that carefully, especially in this segment over here, you can see it moving back and forth. So that's normal lung there, normal lung sliding. And here's what that looks like with the high-frequency probe. So you get better detail with the high-frequency, high-resolution probe. We're only looking at one inner space because it's a smaller probe. And here's the pleura right there. And again, you can see, especially at that section there, that it slides back and forth. So if you see pleural sliding, you rule out pneumothorax. If you see beelines, you rule out pneumothorax. Lung pulse, I'll talk about that in a moment, and the seashore sign rules out pneumothorax. What rules in pneumothorax is if you see a lung point or the so-called barcode sign. You can see A lines and Z lines in both normal and pneumothorax. So those don't help you at all. So this is what pneumothorax is going to look like. So the right lung here, you can see the pleura sliding. See a few isolated B lines and Z lines, and they're moving around, so that's good. Over here on the pneumothorax side, no sliding. Here's another example of that. Sliding on this side, no sliding on that side. That's all there is to it. Right? Now you're looking at that thinking, wow, that, that's kind of subtle. That, that could be, I could make a diff, you know, mistake doing that. So you kind of wish there was a, like an easy button that helped you out, right? Well, there actually is an easy button. It's called M mode. So you hit that M mode button, put the M mode line somewhere through in inner space, and on the normal side, you're going to see the so-called seashore sign. And on the pneumothorax, you're going to see the barcode sign, okay? Old-fashioned barcode, not QR code. So you've probably seen these images before, but have you ever actually asked yourself why do they look the way they look? I mean, on the normal side, you can sort of rationalize and say, well, the lung's moving here, so I see wiggly lines there, right? But why does the pneumothorax side look like that? 
Well, let's, let me explain that to you. Let's look at these images once again. Look at the pneumothorax side. There's the pleura. Look at what's below the pleura and look what's above the pleura. What do you notice about that? It's a mirror image. Now look at the normal side. Look at what's below the pleura and look what's above the pleura. It's a mirror image also, but the mirror is not a very clear mirror. Why? Because the air on the normal side is contained within the alveoli. So what you get is an irregular bumpy mirror. All right, so if you have a bumpy mirror, you're going to have a bumpy reflection. If you have a perfect mirror, you're going to have a perfect reflection. And that's why the pneumothorax looks like it does. It's a perfect mirror reflection of the straight lines above the pleura. In fact, it's such a perfect reflection, you could flip that upside down and you wouldn't know the difference. So M-mode makes it easy because it accentuates the mirroring difference between pneumothorax and normal. So in this picture here, you can't tell if it's mirrored or not because this stuff here is very indistinct. But if you put that M-mode through there, it's very clearly a pneumothorax because it's wiggly over here and straight over there. So M-mode makes it real easy for you. And to demonstrate that, we're going to play a little game called Pneumo or Normal. All right, and the way this game is going to work is I'm going to flash up some MO tracings like that. And very quickly, you're going to be able to say whether that's a pneumo or a normal. Okay, all ready? Normal. Pneumo. Normal. you're not sure, you can go, mm. everybody think you got the right answer. That's normal. All right, everybody look at those. Are you convinced that they show what I say they show? Yeah, some of them are a little bit tricky, and the last two especially are tricky, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Okay, but if you have a question as to whether it's pneumo or normal, all, all you got to do is look at the other side and compare, all right? This side clearly has a bunch of squiggly lines. This side, a little bit squiggly, but not nearly enough. So that's a pneumo. So M-mode is basically your go-to for rapid diagnosis in pneumothorax. However, this is based on a couple assumptions. One is that you have underlying healthy lungs. And number two, the patient's not working really hard to breathe. Unfortunately, the M mode can be very difficult and sometimes impossible to read if a patient has diseased lungs and they're working hard to breathe. Let me explain why. So let's look at this M mode tracing in better detail so we understand what we're looking at. When you're looking at M mode, you're looking at movement along this line here. And the top part of the line represents the skin, the pectoral muscle, the intercostal muscle, and below that is, quote, lung. Well, if you have someone with diseased lungs who are who is working hard to breathe, the soft tissue up here is not going to be a bunch of straight lines because you're going to see muscular movement. And then below the lungs, if you have a big bulla, that's going to cause a perfect mirroring effect, and it's going to cause straightened long, uh, lines. So if you have severe emphysema, you can get a false positive for pneumothorax. And that's because you don't have a lot of lung sliding because they're hyperventil uh, hyper, or they have air trap air trapping, so you're not going to get a whole lot of lung sliding. And the lung bulla is going to resemble a pneumothorax. And unfortunately, you can't just look at the other lung to compare to see what it should look like because the other lung is diseased, and in fact, it's diseased in a different way. So here's someone with a COPD exacerbation. You can see the retractions happening here. And very subtly, you can see that there is some sliding, although it's pretty hard to see. Okay, and here's his MO tracing. So what we see is a bunch of wiggly lines up here because he's working hard to breathe. And yeah, this is the seashore over here, but this kind of looks like a barcode over there. And that's because there's a lung bulla in there. 
So that makes it very confusing to interpret. So here's a picture that kind of looks like a pneumothorax. Is it, or is it just COPD? Well, one of the problems with interpreting this picture is that the pleura is smushed all the way up there. If you turn down the depth a bit, you can see that this is pretty straight up here, and there's some wiggly stuff down there, enough to differentiate that from the straight lines up top. So that's normal, not a pneumo. So here's a case of a, a false positive for pneumothorax. This person had severe emphysema. And here's his CT just to demonstrate how much emphysematous changes he has. And I'm going to ultrasound the apex up here and here. Now notice on the right there's a little bit of semi-normal lung parenchyma below the pleura, whereas over here that bulla is directly underneath the pleura. Okay, so here's the B mode image. So you clearly you can see lung sliding over here. Over there, not so much. I mean, it's subtle, but it's there. Okay, and if you look at the M mode tracing on the right side, very clearly seashore. On that side, kind of looks like a barcode. This, this patient wasn't having an exacerbation. I asked him to hold his breath, and that looks exactly like a pneumothorax. Now, when I give this lecture to my EM colleagues, I tell them not to worry about this. Because in order to bring you this image, I had to scan every COPD or walked into the ED for six months before I could get this picture. Because all of them, even those with huge bulla, it was really, really easy to see that they had normal uh, M mode. Okay? Now, your population is going to be different than mine. You're going to get the worst of the worst, the COPDers who you know, are intubated or need you know, ventilatory support of some kind. So you're much more likely to come across this. So just be aware of this. All right. To help you differentiate between COPD and the pneumothorax, use the linear probe. Higher resolution, you get better images, you're going to see things more clearly. Make sure to adjust the depth so the pleura is at the center of the screen so you can see everything that you need to see. And you want to look really closely for pleural sliding, because if you see that, that's a get out of jail free card right there. You're done. If you have to look at the M mode, look very carefully to see if the so-called C and the shore look alike. All right, let's look at a case study. So 84-year-old man with severe shortness of breath. He had a right-sided lung biopsy the day before I saw him. His history of COPD. So he's an extremist. He's breathing very quickly. He's hypoxic. He's got tight wheezes and decreased breath sounds on the right. So obviously, I'm thinking pneumothorax, right? Lung biopsy, pneumothorax. But he's got tight wheezes. Just could be bad COPD exacerbation. So you bring the ultrasound machine in there, and there you see. What does that look like? Seashore, right? That good. Whew. It's all right. All right, here's his other lung just for comparison. Now look at those two M modes. Do you notice anything different? Yeah, the plural line is higher. Where's the plural line on the left? It's down here, right? On the right, you're looking at it up there. Well, that's not the plural line. The plural line's actually down there. I can prove that because if you look at the M mode or the B mode image up here, the plural line is at one and a half centimeters. That's where that is. Okay, if you look elsewhere on that same right lung, you can see the pleural line much more distinctly. Now look at what's above and look at what's below the pleural line. That's a mirror image. That's a barcode, quote unquote. It's not really a barcode, but it's the equivalent. You look over there, same thing. That's a barcode. So if you think that the pleura is up there, then you've made the mistake of calling that a seashore. Okay, here's his x-ray. That's not even close. That is not subtle. That's definitely a pneumothorax. It's got some sub-Q emphysema up there in the neck, too. Okay. So here's the take-home message. When you're looking at the M mode, find out where your pleural line is. Because if it's there, that's no pneumothorax. But if it's somewhere down there, that could be a pneumothorax. And you're going to have to look carefully to see if it's a mirror image or not. So 
Having seen that, now you might be scared off of the M mode. So you think, okay, maybe I should just look for pleural sliding. Because if you see pleural sliding, 100% that excludes pneumothorax. Unfortunately, the converse is not true. Absence of pleural sliding does not rule into pneumothorax because there's a lot of things that can cause the lack of pleural sliding. Someone who's hyper uh, expanded, they're not, gonna, you know, they're not gonna have a lot of pleural sliding. If you have consolidation or a pleural adhesion at that point, you're not gonna see pleural sliding. So the absence of pleural sliding is not helpful. So when I teach you know, lung ultrasound to beginners, I tell them, you know, go ahead and hit the M mode button. It makes life really easy for you. But if you're gonna be really good at this, what you're gonna do is you're gonna look carefully at your B mode first. And if you see pleural sliding, consolidation, or B lines, you're done. You've ruled out pneumothorax at that inner space. Now, if that doesn't prove to be conclusive, then you're gonna look at your M mode. And you're gonna accurately identify where the pleural line is. And then you're gonna ask yourself, is the stuff above the pleural line a mirror image of the stuff below the pleural line? Finally, the last thing you can do is look for a lung pulse. Lung pulses are basically cardiac activity transmitted through the lung that you can see at the pleura. Normally, you don't see a lung pulse because it's masked by ventilation, because movement of the lung through normal ventilation is much greater than the movement that cardiac activity transmits through the uh, lung. Uh, if you see this, it excludes pneumothorax 100%. So here's a lung pulse in someone who's not breathing. If you look very carefully at this pleural line here, you can see very slight movements. And if you look at that, those movements, it's the same rate as a heartbeat. Okay, here's another example of lung pulsing with a phased array probe. You can't see the pleura very well because, hey, that's phased array probe, that's what you get. But you can see this movement here, and that movement is exactly the same rate as a heartbeat. And if you put MMO through that, you will see that the rate of that perturbation matches the patient's heart rate. Now, without these little lung pulses, that would look exactly like a pneumothorax, because this is a barcode if you erase those. This is something called the lung point. This is the point at which a pneumothorax begins or ends, where the visceral pleura separates from the parietal pleura. That's why you see movement on one side and not on the other side. And if you put the M mode right through that point, you get a very cool picture where you get a mix of seashore and barcode. So this is your algorithm. If you see pleural sliding, done, no pneumothorax. If you don't see pleural sliding, look for B lines or consolidation. You see those, no pneumothorax. Finally, look for your lung pulse. If you see that, no pneumothorax. If you still can't make a decision, then you gotta do the hard work and go to that M mode and look for a wrinkled mirror, your seashore sign, or a perfect mirror, your barcode sign. Now you might be asking yourself, well, what's the sensitivity of ultrasound for pneumothorax? What's the smallest pneumothorax you can see? Well, to answer that question, next time try scanning without gel. What's gonna happen? You're gonna see nothing. Why? Why is that? Well, as smooth as you think skin is, it's not perfectly smooth. It has wrinkles with air pockets in it. And those air pockets are enough to prevent the ultrasound beam from passing through into the skin. So you're not, you're not gonna see anything. Put a little bit of water on there, all of a sudden you can see. And that, the, the water basically fills in the air pockets and allows the ultrasound beam to pass out of the probe into the body. So, in other words, the ultrasound is very, very sensitive to even small layers of air. It'll pick up pneumothoraces that are not clinically significant at all. So it's not the question of how sensitive is ultrasound for pneumothorax. The question is how sensitive are you in recognizing what the ultrasound machine is showing you? The other thing about ultrasound is it can't distinguish a tension from a non-tension pneumothorax. They look exactly the same on ultrasound. Now, a single view of normal lung will exclude a tension pneumothorax because to be a tension pneumothorax, it's gotta be 100% deflated, right? So if you see normal lung anywhere, it can't be a tension. It doesn't rule out a small non-tension pneumothorax.
Let's talk about plural findings with effusions now. This is the one thing that actually makes sense on ultrasound. Um, acute effusions tend to be anechoic and homogeneous, whereas chronic effusions are going to be mixed echogenicity and often loculated. Ultrasound is exceedingly sensitive. It's a magnitude more sensitive than a supine x-ray here. So very um, simply, that's an effusion right there. It's anechoic above the diaphragm. Over here, we see pseudo-long there. We know that to be a mirror image of the liver. And here's a video clip showing the lung coming into view as this patient breathes in. With, pneuma, uh, with uh, an effusion, you're going to see the so-called spine sign. So in a normal lung, you won't see this. These are the spine bodies. You won't see it above the diaphragm. But over here, with the effusion, you can see the spine above the diaphragm. And this can be a very helpful sign because, you know, this part here is pretty much as dark as that part over there. So it'd be hard to distinguish whether or not there's an effusion. So you can see the spine because with an effusion there, the ultrasound beam can pass through the diaphragm to reach the spine. But in a normal lung, it's going to bounce over to the liver. Now, you'll see this as well if there's a consolidation. So that's not specific for an effusion. It just means that there's something there that allows the ultrasound beam to pass through the diaphragm to the spine. So here's a patient I saw who had a stab wound to the right chest. And of course, what you want to know is, is there a pneumothorax or a hemothorax? And here's his ultrasound. No pneumothorax. And here's his uh, cul-de-sac there showing an effusion. Now, notice the uh, supine portable shows nothing. That just shows you how lousy supine portables are, right? So here's a CT. That's not an inconsequential, inconsequential effusion. It's fairly big. So with the supine x-ray, of course, it's all going to layer out, and it's not going to be positive. So ultrasound is much more sensitive than x-ray. So here's a pleural effusion with uh, atelectic lung hanging out in there. Here's a empyema. You can see the debris sort of floating and swirling around in there. Here's a chronic effusion. It's loculated. Notice the adjacent lung has a bunch of B lines in it due to the uh, adjacent fluid. This is the sinusoid sign. I don't use this myself, but if you read about it, this is what it is. If you put in M mode through the effusion, you'll see the lung coming closer and then receding away from the pleura, giving it a sinusoid appearance. All right, special section here for you, diaphragmatic dysfunction. So you would want to look at the diaphragm to try to assess possible failure to wean from a vent. And you know, there's traditional ways of doing this, which you know way more than I do. Uh, and this is sort of a new thing that's trying to predict failure to wean by a relatively non-invasive and repeatable manner. So you can look at the diaphragm anatomy by measuring its expiratory thickness or its inspiratory thickening, or you can look at the diaphragm excursion. So let's talk about thickness first. What you're going to do is image the diaphragm at the, quote, zone of apposition. And the zone of apposition is basically where the diaphragm is sandwiched between the liver or spleen and the body wall. So this is an inner space right above the zone of apposition. So we see the lung coming down. And then that's the diaphragm right there. So you would want to image one inner space below that or caudal to that. And this is what you're going to see. So the diaphragm is this sliver right here. And as you can see, it thickens when the patient inspires. And basically, you're going to measure it in inspiration and expiration and calculate a thickening fraction, as they say. Now, you can do that using a split screen like this, or you can do that using M-mode. The tricky thing about doing it by M-mode is trying to figure out which one of these lines is the diaphragm. It's always the bottom two lines. And you're going to measure the thinnest and then the thickest portion of it. So an average expiratory thickness is going to be 1.7 millimeters. Thinner than that's going to suggest atrophy and failure to wean. Or a thickening fraction, it should be 
That's the inspiration minus expiration divided by expiration. It should thicken by uh, better than uh, one third. And again, if it doesn't thicken properly, that is predictive of failure to wean. Now do realize when you do this, you're gonna wanna use that high frequency probe for best resolution. And even with that, there's about a five to 7% error rate because of resolution. You just can't resolve things smaller than about one or 0.1 millimeter. To, to perform a measurement, a diaphragm, diaphragm excursion, what you're gonna do is place the probe a little bit lateral to the midclavicular line. Now, oftentimes you can't do this on the left side because uh, gastric air will be in the way, so you're pretty much limited to the right side in many cases. And ideally, what you wanna do is measure how much the diaphragm moves in a cephalad caudal direction, right? So you wanna measure that. So you're gonna put the probe down and get this image. Looks like this. Now the problem is there's no reliable way to measure this green line, because, well, you just can't do it. All right, so what you end up doing is you put an M-mode line and you measure the diaphragmatic excursion along the M-mode. And that's what it looks like there. Now if you hopefully have a zoom function on your machine, you can zoom into that because that line doesn't move a whole lot, and you can measure that. So a normal diaphragmatic excursion is gonna be 10 to 14 millimeters with normal breathing. With a maximal inspiratory effort, it can be up to or 25 millimeters. Now these two tracings are exactly the same, but the measurements are different. And this is to point out a pitfall, is that when you measure this, you wanna measure from either the bottom of the line to the bottom of the line, or the top line to the top line. Not from the bottom line to the top line because you're going to include the thickness of the diaphragm itself and that'll introduce an error to your measurement. Placement of your M-mode line will also change your measurement because if you place the M-mode here, you're gonna get a certain measurement. If you place your M-mode there, you're gonna get a different measurement. And if you place your M-mode there, you get a even you know, much different measurement. So you can see there's a lot of potential error that can happen here. And here's a real life example of, uh, you know, a low, abnormally low measurement. Put the M mode somewhere else, it becomes normal. So ideally what you wanna do is place the M mode somewhere in this green range. Ideally where it's perpendicular to the diaphragm itself. And this is just a tracing of diaphragmatic paralysis. Instead of this line going up, the line will go down. So thickening fraction you can use for both spontaneous and mechanical ventilation. And you can assess both diaphragm. You have the potential error from the resolution of the probe. Excursion, you can only, it's only predictive for spontaneous breathing. Okay, so you can't have someone on the vent. I mean, if you have someone on the vent and you turn up their tidal volume to a liter, you can make that diaphragm move a lot. Doesn't mean anything. Oftentimes, you can only assess the right hemidiaphragm, and you can have a lot of error depending on where you put that M mode. So basically, thickening fraction to me seems like, yeah, that's reproducible. But excursion, yeah, you can re repeat it. I don't know how reproducible it is. So here's some a study which is included in your handouts that I sent to your coordinator that gives you an overview of this. Um, I suggest you read this. So I'm including this in this lecture because you asked for it, but I have no reason to do this on my own because I don't wean people from the vent in the ED. So I can tell you how to do this, but I can't tell you whether or not you should do this. Um, what I can tell you from reading the literature, this you know, the papers I've read is that so far the studies are mostly observational. There have been no sort of randomized trials to assess the predictive value of these things. So a few years from now, stay tuned, see if this stuff ever pans out. All right, so in summary, to understand lung ultrasound, you gotta realize that it has all to do with mirrors and reverberation. It's not intuitive, but it's not hard to learn. You learn how to read those artifacts, you can read lung ultrasound. It's most useful when you don't have an x-ray that's rapidly available or it's a lousy quality and you need answers quickly on that patient. 
pleural findings are highly accurate. You can confidently rule in and rule out pneumothorax and effusion if you do it correctly. For healthy lungs, just hit that M mode, you'll get a um, rapid diagnosis. For diseased lungs, you're going to have to be a little bit better than that and use your superior skills. For parenchymal findings, you really have to use clinical correlation. Sensitivity is very operator dependent. B lines, they're very sensitive. They pick up things, you know, you see B lines in all kinds of pathology, but you have to decide what that pathology is. And if you ever see solid lung, it's usually not good news. Just remember that a normal lung ultrasound does not mean normal lung, okay? The pathology has to get out to the periphery for you to, sign, uh, to see it. So here are your tea leaves. A is okay. B is bad. You can relax if you see a seashore, but make sure you know where that shoreline is. You can not see healthy lungs because they're hidden, but you can see sick lungs. So this man has attended this lecture and knows that this woman cannot possibly be seeing what she's seen. Anybody know why? No? Right. If you see B-lines, you can't have a pneumothorax, and if you have a pneumothorax, you cannot see B-lines. Thank you for your attention. Uh, so thanks for a great talk. Two questions. I had thought Z-lines were created by both pleura together with a tiny bit of fluid, and so I thought they also ruled out pneumothorax. Sounds like that's incorrect. No, yeah, you, it's only B lines that rule out pneumothoraces. Okay. So the Z lines, yeah, they come from the parietal pleura, so when you see them, it doesn't mean anything, because you're going to see the parietal pleura even with the pneumothorax. Okay. And then the second, I guess, um, I think the, the main place for a f correctly, correctly interpreted false positive for pneumothorax would be if you had a, a right main stem where you weren't aerating the left lung, that would look for all the world like a pneumothorax, is that right? That's correct, and okay. that's where you would use the lung pulse to okay. you know, suss out whether that's a pneumothorax. In fact, that's where some of that literature on the lung pulse came out was for main stem intubations or detecting main stem intubations, so that you're going to see the lung pulse in the non-ventilated lung. All right, thanks. thanks.